place in Psalm 69. Psalm 69. We've sang this morning, we've heard the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, all of these calling us to give gratitude and praise and thanks to the Lord for His goodness and blessings to us. And the reason for that is, number one, we're followers of Jesus and we ought to be grateful for the gifts that God has given us. And number two, we have a very special holiday, national holiday this week of Thanksgiving. And uh, many of you will gather at grandma's house or mom's house or gather at your own house with friends and family and sit around and eat the thunder chicken. God, thank God for the thunder chicken, amen? I, I love turkey. Uh, I love everything about turkey. I love to hunt them. I love to, to end their life, and I love to feast on them. I know that sounds so politically incorrect these days, but uh, that's just the reality of being a meat eater, but it's good. But our Thanksgivings this Thursday will look a whole lot different than that first Thanksgiving of which this, this holiday is commemorating. In September 1620, there was a small ship called the Mayflower that left Plymouth, England, and on that ship were 102 passengers. It was made up of an assortment of religious separatists who were seeking a new home in the new land to practice religious freedom and practice their faith as they saw fit. There were others who were on that ship who were lured uh, to the promise of prosperity, the promise of land ownership in the new world. After a treacherous and very uncomfortable crossing of the Atlantic that lasted 66 days, The Mayflower dropped anchor near the tip of Cape Cod, far north of their intended destination. They were intended to to drop anchor there at the mouth of the Hudson River. One month later, the Mayflower crossed the Massachusetts Bay where the pilgrims, as we now know them, began the work of establishing a village there in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Throughout that first brutal winter, most of the colonists remained on board of the ship rather than coming to the land. There on the ship, they suffered from exposure. They suffered from scurvy. They suffered from a a host of contagious diseases. In fact, only half of the Mayflower's original passengers ever made it to the next spring. In March, though, the remaining settlers who survived the winter moved ashore, and there they were received an astonishing visit from an Abenaki Indian who greeted them in English. Can you imagine coming to the New World and a Native American comes up and says, Hey, guys, how are you doing? kind of freak you out. It's like speaking tongues here. That's what happens. You see, this man knew English. And then several days later, he, this man returns with another a Native American. This man was named Squanto. You know his story. He's a member of the Paxatuk. I, I, I practice this, this tribe's name all morning long, and I just blew it. So from another tribe there, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Patuxet, I think so you say it. And so this man, Squanto, you know, had been kidnapped by an English sea captain. He was sold into slavery, taken back to England, and before escaping to London, and then eventually returning to his homeland on an exploratory expedition, uh, he somehow made his way back. And so Squanto was a friend of the pilgrims. He taught them uh, and showed them so many things. He helped them in their malnutrition. He helped in their weakness and their illnesses. He taught them how to cultivate corn, how to extract sap from the trees, how to catch fish in the rivers, and, and what poisonous plants to avoid. He also helped the settlers forge an alliance with another, with another local tribe, which would endure for more than 50 years. And so Squanto and those Indians helped the pilgrims make it through their first year. 
And then in November 1621, after the pilgrims' first corn harvest proved successful, Governor William Bradford organized a celebratory feast, and he invited a group of the fledging colony's Native American allies, including the chief of that local tribe that they had struck a, an alliance with. Now remembered as America's first Thanksgiving, this festival lasted three days. And while no record exists of exactly what they ate on those days during that Thanksgiving feast, uh, now when we gather around Thanksgiving, what are we going to have? We're going to have turkey and dressing, apple pie, pumpkin pie, and some other kind of pie because we can't have Thanksgiving without four or five desserts. Amen? Mashed potatoes, green bean casserole, and, and you name it, probably something else is going to be added to that. And then you've got to have rolls and, and, and all the fixings that go along with that. So we don't know exactly what they ate at their Thanksgiving feast, but uh, one uh, observer, one person who was there that chronicled much of what happened during this time, his name's Edward Winslow, and he wrote in his journal that Governor Bradford sent four men on a fowling mission, going after, obviously, the Thunder Chicken, in preparation for this event, and then their Native American guest arrived bearing five deer. I mean, I, I can't think of a better Thanksgiving than turkey and venison on the table. And so Thanksgiving, as we know it, began November of 1621. What were they celebrating? What were they celebrating? What were they praising the Lord for? What was the purpose of this event? Well, we know that they celebrated God's faithfulness. You see, those early pilgrims, as they gathered around with their friends and their neighbors, they were there not just to celebrate the food that they had. They were there not just to celebrate the friends that they had. They were there to celebrate and honor and praise the Lord for His bountiful blessings in their life. They were celebrating the faithfulness of God and the provision of God in their life. That first Thanksgiving was neither about the food nor the fellowship. It was only about the Lord. See, this was an opportunity for them to make much of their great God. It was an opportunity for them to remember and acknowledge the greatness of God. And that's what King David does in Psalm 69. So I hope you have your fingers there. Look at verse 30 through 32. David wrote in this psalm, he says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The psalmist here says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Giving. You know, those words, when we read those in this psalm, perhaps you've read this devotionally, and obviously we've looked at it even this morning. When you read these words, our immediate thought is, well, sure, we can praise the Lord, we can thank the Lord when all is well in our life, right? It's easy to praise God when everything's going the way we think it ought to. It's easy to praise the Lord. It's easy to be grateful for what the Lord has brought into our life when things are going well. But it's hard sometimes to thank God. When things are not going so well. It may be hard for you this Thanksgiving season to praise and to thank the Lord because at some point this year you lost a loved one. Or at some point this year you were diagnosed with cancer and you've been going through treatment. You've been battling this, this illness and this illness. It's hard for us to praise the Lord when all things are not as they should be. It's easy for us to praise the Lord when life is good. But as David writes this psalm here, we know that in David's life not all was well 
when he wrote many of his psalms. In fact, the one to whom this psalm is referring to, many scholars believe this to be a messianic psalm, a psalm that would point to Jesus and his experience in this life, uh, and ultimately his experience there on the cross. We know if that's true, then this psalm does not speak well of the one who's going to experience suffering and pain and the and, and the forsaking of the Father in his life. And yet, David tells us here in these verses to praise the Lord and to magnify him with thanksgiving. The psalm here begins, if we were to read, the, read it in its entirety, it begins with an appeal for God to save him. So if it's speaking of the Messiah, which I believe it is, the, the, the Messiah here is, is appealing for God to save him from those who would destroy his life. He describes the suffering and the false accusations he has led he has had to endure. And, and then we see in verse 29 how he says, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then we come to verse 30. And even in, in light of how things are not well, things are bad, things are difficult, and there's suffering and pain, and all of the things that would go along with our life, and especially the Messiah, in verse 30, David says, We will praise him with a song. We will magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. Our hearts will be grateful, even when it seems like there's nothing to be grateful for. So today, as we approach this Thanksgiving week, it's good for us to examine our hearts. It's good for us to uh, remind ourselves and to be grateful of all the, God, all the blessings that God has given to us. Because if we don't take time in our life, and this ought not to be just an annual thing, this ought to be a daily thing, where we are grateful to God for what He's given us. We bless the Lord in the good times and the bad times. Because here's a key truth about the life of a Christian. The mark of all true children of God is the longing to magnify the God of their salvation. It ought to be the the mark of our life is that we want to magnify Jesus. We want to magnify him in our life. We want to lift high the name of Jesus. We want to exalt him. Why? Because he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of the praise of all people. I mean, that's what drives us in missions. We don't just go to the nations with the gospel because we see some photographs that make us feel bad about the people's condition. We go to the nations with the gospel because they are people who need to praise the Lord Jesus because he is worthy of their worship. That's why we do what we do. It's all about the glory of God. Psalm 4016 magnifies this, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Psalm 34, 3, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 48, 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. All throughout the Old Testament we see that this was the heart of every saint of God. Every man and woman of God had a desire to praise and to worship and to adore the name of their God. We find in the New Testament this was also the desire of every true Christian. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Of God. In other words, do everything with the purpose of magnifying the Lord in your life. Everything that you do, every word that you say, every action you take, every thought you think, every work that you get engaged with, everything you do, bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Is this not the desire of our lives today? 
Is this not the desire of your life? It ought to be. Do we not desire, like Paul, for Christ to be magnified in our bodies, whether it's life or death? I mean, that's what he's saying there in Philippians chapter 120. It doesn't matter what happens to me in my life or in my death. May it glorify Jesus. Therefore, the longing to magnify God, the God of our salvation, is the mark of the Christ follower. David here in verse 30 says, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. The word magnify is an interesting word. It really has two different connotations. It can mean to make something appear greater than it is, as with a microscope. I mean, if you remember back when you were in school and your science teacher told you to pull out the microscopes and you had the little glass slide and something was on that and you put it underneath the scope and you looked at something very, very small, but it made it in the, in the viewer very, very large so you could see what's going on. So that's one of the ideas of uh, to magnify us, to take something that's small and to magnify it. Sometimes when we're reading the papers, we get older. Our glasses aren't good enough, so what do you do? My grandpa used to have this in his living room. You got the old magnifying glass with a light built into it, and you pull it over to you, and you read the newspaper or the magazine or whatever else you may read today. It brings something that's small and makes it appear big. The second connotation is to make something that may seem small or may seem insignificant appear to be as great as it really is. The other night I was outside in, in, in our front yard and I was, uh, went outside. I, I'd been burning some, some logs and so I wanted to go check on it before I went to bed. I didn't want to burn the neighbor's houses down or my own house. So I went out there just to make sure that everything was good before I closed up shop even though I knew it was. So I go outside, and I look up the stars, and there were so many stars that it kind of surprised me uh, that we could see so many stars. And it's amazing when you look up to the sky in the evening at night because those stars that you're looking at seem to be so faint, seem to be so small. But we would, if we could get close enough to those stars, we would see that they are ginormous, if you will. They're stars that we look at that would dwarf our own sun, our own star that provides light and heat. For us today, it would dwarf anything that we would know in our own solar system, in our own galaxy, and yet they are so distant and they seem so small. So, what do we do? We pull out the telescope and we look way off into the distance, and what seems to be small and insignificant all of a sudden takes, begins to take shape and begins to reclaim some of its grandeur. You see those stars and those galaxies that are out there. They spilled over from the brim of God's glory. And they are vast and they are magnificent and they are wonderful and they are huge. And so when we take the telescope, we're not looking at something small and insignificant. We are looking at something enormous and it begins to take on the shape that it really has. Two kinds of magnifying. There's the magnoscope, microscope magnifying and there's the telescope magnifying. One makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. So David here says, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. We need to know he's not saying, I will magnify the Lord who is small and insignificant and we will make him seem like he is something. No, what David is saying is, I magnify the Lord with thanksgiving. I'm beginning to bring him to the proper position of what he is. He is great. He is exalted. He is magnificent. And we ought to see him like that. He is glorious. David is saying, I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. 
So the call here is not to be a microscope, a microscope in our life. It's rather to be a telescope in our life. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product all out of proportion when they know that their competitor's product is better than theirs. So we're not called to be a con man to make the Bible and God to look like he's something he's not. No, what we're to do is to magnify the Lord and let the Lord be who he is in our life and through our lives so God is exalted and God is praised. The whole duty of the Christian, we could sum up like this. We are to feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. And so we ought to be a telescope glorifying, magnifying the Lord. The greatness of the God of the Bible ought to be the most obvious reality to us. I mean, think about it. When we read there in Genesis and we see the creation and we see how there was once nothing but God himself. And then it was one day in his sovereign wisdom, he says, I'm going to create something. He began to speak and things that we know to be in existence today began to form. We ought to be in awe of the reality of the greatness of our God. And yet for some reason, we're not always that way. Our sensitivity is often dulled by the sin in our life. Our sensitivity is often dulled by our forgetfulness. I mean, how many times do we forget about the greatness of God? How many times do we lose sight of the greatness of God? Our sensitivity is often dulled by by just simply the struggles and the suffering in this life. We get sidetracked. We get derailed by just the things of life. All the while, we should never lose sight of God's greatness. It's here that we need to beg God to open our eyes to the reality of His greatness. We need to plead with Him that, the, that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, that He would help us not to forget how great and how good He really is. Perhaps that's why David in Psalm 103 preached to himself. You ever preach to yourself? We ought to preach to ourselves. I mean, every time I'm preaching up here, I'm preaching to myself more than I'm preaching to you. Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, David said these words, excuse me. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In other words, don't forget anything about the Lord. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. Don't forget anything about the goodness of God. I think David understood what we need to remember and that, we, that is, we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to get sidelines because of the suffering and struggles in life. We have a tendency to, to get dull in our sensitivity because of our own sin and the temptations we give into. It's God's people. We're called to be telescopes who make the greatness of God appear as, it, as great as it really is. And this is what it means to magnify God. It's what David's talking about in verse 30. So how do we magnify the greatness of God? How do we make the greatness of God appear as it really is? David here answers this question by telling us that we're to magnify him with thanksgiving. You see, one of the greatest ways that we can ascribe glory and honor to the name of Jesus is simply in our gratitude for what he has done. We're called to be grateful. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, in the 20th century said the beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. What was wrong with Adam and Eve there in the garden? They forgot to be grateful. What was wrong with Lucifer in, in heaven there? As we see in Isaiah 14, he forgot to be grateful. 
Gratitude glorifies the Lord. How does it do so? You see, when we are thankful and grateful for what he has done, three things are acknowledged in our lives. I want to give them to you this morning. First of all, when we, when we are grateful, for, when we are thankful, we acknowledge that God is greater. We acknowledge that God is greater than ourselves. I just mentioned Isaiah 14 there with Lucifer. The Bible tells us there in that chapter, specifically verse 14, that the rebellious cry of Lucifer's heart was, I will be like the Most High. I will be like God, in other words. Lucifer forgot to be grateful. Lucifer forgot who he was and forgot who God was. And he began to think that he could be on par with the God most high. He forgot to be grateful. And the pride that welled up in his life led to his rebellion. We find in Genesis 3 there with Adam and with Eve that the rebellious cry of our first parents, the rebellious cry of Adam's heart there in the garden was, I will be like God. He listened to the temptation of the enemy. He listened to the temptation of Lucifer as he whispered into Adam's ears the same thing that he was whispering in his own heart many, many eons earlier. And he fell because he forgot to be grateful. He forgot to remember that God is greater. So at the root of all ingratitude is the love of one's own greatness. How much we love to think that we're so great. I mean, how much do we love to relish in our own glory, relish in our own abilities, relish in our own accomplishments? We love to pat ourselves on the back, do we not? Look what I've done. Look what I can do. Look at my degrees. Look at my accolades. Look at my resume. Look at all the things that I've accomplished. When as a child of God, a follower of Jesus Christ, there ought not, there ought not to ever be a pat on our back from ourselves. But instead, we ought to give all thanks and all praise and all glory to God for even choosing to allow us to be used. When we begin to thank the Lord and show gratitude, we magnify Him because we understand and we relish in the truth that God is greater. Unfortunately, we probably all know someone who cannot bring himself or herself to this disposition of gratefulness. This person is incapable of saying thank you. You ever met a person like that? I'm sure you have. You know these people, but they can't say thank you. I see this a lot, a lot of times in children. I think as adults, we, we've learned to kind of manipulate the system. We'll say thank you, and, and, and man, I appreciate that, but we really don't mean it inside. We just say it because it's what you're supposed to say, right? But children don't know that yet. And so in the sinful, rebellious hearts of children, we see this unadulterated. I mean, my own children at times, we got to like pull gratitude out of them, right? My my children are the only ones that do this. You're supposed to help me out here. I'm starting to think that i got the worst children on the planet, but I think it's all of our children because I've seen your children. uh, Your children have been in my house. We see this in children. You've got to teach them to say thank you. I got a child, I'm not going to name which one it is, probably all three, but I got a child that, that almost refuses to say thank you. She's getting a little better. Why is that? It's because we want to think that we're great. We want to think that we've got it together. We want to think that I've done this myself. And so we all know a person who can't say thank you. 
And the reason they can't say thank you is because in, in the act of showing gratitude reveals that the one to whom that you're thankful is greater than you. And so gratitude begins to admit that you're a beneficiary of something that's unearned. And so the reason our sinful flesh doesn't want to say thank you is because we want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We want to make something of ourselves. But when I praise the name of God, when I magnify him with thanksgiving, what I'm doing is I'm acknowledging and I'm declaring that God is greater than me. We need to live in that state of understanding that God is greater than I am. Think about the pilgrims this morning. There in 1621, as they celebrated and feasted and thanked the Lord, they made seven times more graves than they did huts. They dug seven times more graves than they constructed in their own housing. And yet they took three days out of November to say thank you. Why? Why? Some of us would just be in despair over that. We would be ticked off at the Lord at that. We would be mad at one another. We'd be at odds with one another. But here we see that these Americans were more more impoverished than any who have ever existed in the history of our country. And yet, nevertheless, they set aside a day to thank the Lord. And so when they feasted, what were they doing? They were acknowledging that God was greater than them. They were declaring that only the grace and the goodness of God had sustained them through that year. They, like John the Baptist, were saying, He must increase and we must decrease. Our gratitude acknowledges that God is greater. Second thing that it acknowledges is this. God is the giver. God is the giver. You see, when we thank God, we acknowledge and demonstrate that God is the giver, that he is the benefactor. And when we give him praise and thanks, when we show our gratitude, we are paying him the highest of compliments. We're paying him the highest of compliments. When we say thank you, that is a high compliment. Why? Because it's magnifying the one who gave the gift. See, when somebody gives you something and you say thank you, that's just not customary language. That's not just some sort of social society thing, culture. There's a better word. tell you, I didn't preach last Sunday. I'm out of practice. um, That's not just culture. That's not just good southern culture, right? Saying thank you is the highest of compliments you can give somebody. Why? Because you're showing gratitude. You're saying, I am a beneficiary from this benefactor. This person has blessed me. I'm indebted to you. So thank you so much. Showing our gratitude to God, what we're doing is we're declaring that he is the wealthy source of our blessings. We are acknowledging him as the giver and the benefactor and therefore as glorious. And when we don't find gratitude in our hearts, it probably means that we don't want to pay him a high compliment. See, our fleshly nature doesn't want to magnify God with thanksgiving because it detracts from our own glory. It's the same thing we were just talking about. We want to make ourselves look better. We want to make ourselves look stronger. We want to make make ourselves look more like self-sufficient. But when we understand that everything we have in this life is attributed back to the Lord, we ought to be grateful There's no such thing as pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Every blessing we have is a gift from God. So this is why God desires our thanksgiving rather than our religious piety. Look what he says in verse 31. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns 
and hooves. Now we think about that, like, what kind of gift is that? But if you understand the Levitical system here and how they worship the Lord, like we're studying in our small groups right now, you will see that the bull was a very expensive offering to give to the Lord. Most people couldn't give that type of offering because they couldn't afford it. And God is saying here is this, I will accept your thanksgiving. I would prefer your thanksgiving, your gratitude, more than the most expensive, worshipful gift you could give me. How is that possible? How could God be honored more by the gratitude than by an expensive, elaborate gift? Surely, God would want some sort of religious piety. But look at Psalm 50. If you want to flip over a couple pages to the left. Verses 9 through 14. This psalm of Asaph answers this question of how could God prefer that over the bull or ox. Verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the the most high. What is God saying here through this psalm? He's saying this. One of the reasons that God was not pleased with the offering of an ox or a bull was that the giver often thought the gift was enriching to God. That somehow in this gift that we're offering to the Lord in worship, that we were making God better. We were enriching or are enriching God. But God says here in this psalm, I don't need any of those things to make me glorious. I don't need any of those things to make me like I am supposed to be. I am self-sufficient. I am the almighty God. I am, I am, I am. I am self-preserving. Nothing you can bring to me would detract or add to who I am. This this type of act is loving to another person. We bring an offering to somebody or we bring a gift to someone who's in need and we say, man, here you are. This is something I just want to give you. I want to be a blessing to you. Maybe they're in a need. Maybe they have no needs. But you still want to be a blessing to them. We give them something that makes them better than they were, right? When we bring that offering to the Lord, we're not attributing anything to Him. We're not making Him better at all. And so by doing that, with a mindset that I am making God more rich, that is an affront. That is an insult to His glory. It's an insult to His sufficiency. So what we find here is man exalting himself again, even in worship. Even in the practice of religion, here he's finding a way to preserve his status as the giver, as the self-sufficient benefactor. In the very act of worship, what he's doing is he's belittling God by refusing to assume the part of a beneficiary. But When we understand that everything that we have comes from the Lord and we are grateful to God, we begin to understand and acknowledge that he is the giver and thus I am a receiver. That's the third thing. We see here, I am a receiver. The reality of every child of God is that he or she is a recipient of the grace and the blessings of God. If you're in relationship with Jesus today, I want you to know you brought nothing to the table outside of your own guilt and your own shame. Think about that. You brought nothing to the table but your guilt and your shame. Unworthy non-desiring, I mean, you you didn't even want it, but God called you to himself, God drew you to himself, he wooed you to himself, 
You did nothing. You were pushing, you were kicking and screaming. All the while, God was wooing you and bringing you and lovingly leading you to himself. And then there at the foot of the cross, what does he ask of you? He doesn't ask you to do, do Go to do something grand. He doesn't ask you to do something great. All he says is, humble yourselves before me and lay your guilt and shame at the foot of the cross because it's already been knelt to the cross and receive from me the blessings of grace. That's all that God asks for us. And so what are we as a child of God? We are receivers. We are recipients of grace. We are recipients of the glorious, wonderful forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We bring nothing of worth to him. We're nothing more than a bunch of cripples leaning on a cross-shaped crutch of Jesus. We're nothing more than paralytics who are living minute by minute in the iron lung of God's mercy. We are nothing more than children who are asleep in heaven's stroller. That's who we are. We're a recipient of grace. But the natural man hates to think of himself in these images. But they are the way that Christ is portrayed. He's the giver. He's the great God. And we are the receiver. Gratitude is seated in the understanding that God is greater. It's seated in the understanding that God is the giver. And it's seated in the understanding that I am simply a receiver. Paul understood that. He understood that he brought nothing into this relationship with Christ. Philippians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there unless you want, but I want to read a couple of verses how Paul speaks to this reality in his life. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I am a recipient of grace. If anybody was going to bring a resume to the table and stand before the Lord and say, look, I can be received because look who I am. I'm Paul. I used to be Saul of Tarsus. I used to be Hebrew free, Hebrews. I, I was zealous above anyone else. I was a persecutor of the church. I mean, I was doing everything I could possibly do to be a faithful, holy, righteous Jew. And yet I came to a place in my life where I smacked my nose up against the reality of my sinfulness and my fleshliness. And I began to realize that I am separated from God, that I am undone, that I'm a sinner under the wrath of a holy God. And there I received grace. There I received 
Jesus. And so today, Paul would say, I stand before you not as Paul, uh, uh, the Hebrew of Hebrews, not as one who was zealous for good works, not as the one who lived and, and, and did everything to fulfill the law. I stand before you as a recipient of the grace and the goodness of a faithful Savior, and his name is Jesus. This Thanksgiving week, I pray that it reminds us that we owe our all to God. I pray this week we begin to see afresh and anew that He is the one through whom we are blessed. That we begin to realize and see that He is the giver of all good things as James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us. May we not just be thankful this week, but as I said earlier, may it be something that is every day a part of our lives. That we live with grateful hearts. That we are thankful for the blessings and the goodness of God. That we are thankful for the personal presence of the Lord Jesus in our lives. That we are thankful for the fact and the reality the spirit of God lives within us as children of God therefore we can live a life that pleases God may we be grateful thankful and in our gratitude magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and in our gratitude point others to the Lord himself he ended there in verse 32 when the humble see it they will be glad you who seek God let your hearts revive. You see, when we begin to be afflicted, when we, our state is humble, when our disposition is humble, we really begin to see who God is, and it revives our hearts, but I also think it revives others around us. There's nothing more repugnant than ingratitude. Amen? There's nothing more than repugnant than ingratitude. I mean, think about the audacity of Christmas morning. You've went out and got this wonderful gift for a loved one and you've wrapped it with beautiful wrapping paper. You've spent all this money, all this time and, and you're just sitting there and that's what we do as parents. We sit there and anticipating oh, we can't wait for our kids and our loved ones to open this and, and they open it like, this is the worst gift I've ever gotten in my life. What do you want to do at that moment? I want to come across the, the room, jerk them up by their, it's never happened in our home yet, but uh, <laughs> I would want to come across the room, jerk them up, and, and just put them on the ceiling fan for a while and turn it on and let them spin around. There's nothing more in, repugnant than ingratitude. So although one of the greatest ways we magnify the Lord is in our gratefulness. Why? Because we're beginning to show to this world we live in that our God is really great. Father, this morning, I pray that this Thanksgiving week would be filled with Great memories and great food and great times of fellowship. But more than that, Lord, may it be a strong week where we set aside time, even daily, just to think about all the blessings that we have. God, I know that in this room and in our church family, this year has not been an easy one. Lord, just in the recent weeks, we've had many deaths and many funerals. There's, a lot of, there's been a lot of sorrow, a lot of heartache. God, we've had families who've had loved ones battling cancer and Alzheimer's and just the effects of living in a fallen world. Well, Lord, we can be thankful. We can still be grateful. Even in the worst of moments, we can magnify the Lord with gratefulness. Lord, even as I pray this, I'm thinking of Paul and Silas. There in that prison, chained to some soldiers, 
with some jailers. Lord, when it seemed like their life would be ending in just a few moments, in just a few hours, what are Paul and Silas doing? They're singing and praising the Lord. They're worshiping you. And the next thing that happens, that jailer and those men who were there heard the gospel. They wanted to know what could bring joy and happiness, what could bring a sense of security and gratitude to hearts who are chained together in a, in a jail cell. Lord, and they began to understand that the difference in Paul and Silas's life was not because they had a better perspective on life. It was simply because they were a recipient of the grace of Jesus Christ. They wanted that too. Lord, this Thanksgiving week, help us to remember all the blessings that we have and to truly be thankful. God, I pray that those who are around us would see the gratefulness in our life. Lord, that we would have a smile perhaps like never before and be drawn to the Jesus that's made the difference in us. Lord, I pray that around Thanksgiving meal this coming Thursday and home after home after home, that the conversation wouldn't be on politics and the conversation wouldn't be on the, the NFL game that's on the TV and the conversation wouldn't be on college football, but Lord, the conversation would be on Jesus and his goodness. We love you and we thank you this morning for first loving us. This morning all around the room, let's stand to our feet.